The inhabitants of Cherry Tree Lane had no idea how much life was going to change after Mary Poppins showed up. She came as a servant, a little bit strange, sure, but then she led the Banks family and others into a new transformed experience of joy and fulfillment and purpose. At the end of the classic Disney movie, the family doesn't even see Mary go. They're happily flying kites in the park with broad smiles. Her salty umbrella parrot says, that's gratitude for you. They didn't even say goodbye. So in Acts chapter 20, after more than two years of daily service, leadership, and friendship, Paul was leaving the city of Ephesus. He came as a servant, led them into a new way of life that they had never uh, experienced before, but that time had come to an end. Now, the circumstances of his leaving weren't as charming as a bunch of Brits flying kites in the park. A huge riot had engulfed the city of Ephesus in chaos. But on his way out, Paul didn't slip away unnoticed. He met with his Christian brothers and sisters who were going to stay behind in the turbulent situation, uh, in that turbulent position in Ephesus. Tonight, I'd like us to try to put ourselves what little we can in the Ephesians position, the Ephesian Christians, that is. We can't know what they were thinking. It's not recorded for us. But we can guess what we might be thinking if the circumstances were the same for us. And we'll find that this group of faithful Christians faced a lot of earthly uncertainty. But Paul was confident that they could experience the kind of strength and peace and unity and growth that only comes from the transformative power of the gospel. So in Acts 20, verse 1, we read this. After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. Ephesus was a major city on the western coast of Turkey. Its population was about 250,000. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, or um, your Bible might call her Diana. That was her Roman name. Artemis is the Greek name. Not only was this temple a religious site, obviously, but it was also a bank and a refuge and a civic center. It was a big deal. But Ephesus wasn't home only to Artemis worship. There was the Roman emperor cult that practiced there and a variety of other Greek religious cults for the different gods. There were also what were known as hero cults that would uh, center around specific individuals, not necessarily deities. There was widespread practice of the occult, magic and sorcery, those sorts of things. One scholar writes, Ephesus, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, was by far the most hospitable to magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans of all sorts. So Paul arrived into this dark city sometime around 52 AD. The next two or three years of his life were jam-packed with ministry and miracles and evangelism and opposition. Among the enemies of the gospel, there was hardened animosity, hardcore opposition. Paul actually described it as fighting with wild beasts in 1 Corinthians. And Paul was the kind of guy that knew opposition. Uh, you know, he would often be run out of town when people are about to kill him. He would, we think of his time in Philippi, he was uh, beaten within an inch of his life, put in the stocks and then into a dungeon. Uh, he was stoned to death at one point. I mean, he was, he was treated really badly. And then when he assesses some of his time, he says, but man, in Ephesus... Ephesus is where I had trouble. Uh, cocaine bear was attacking me in Ephesus, right? Uh, and so 
within the local church, uh, there, there was a lot of growth and, and the Lord was doing some great things, but, uh, but there was also some, some issues within the local church that Paul was ministering to. We see that there was some confusion, particularly in the early days. When Paul first arrives in Ephesus, there are 12 believers there, we're told, and Paul starts talking to him, and he says, hey, so when you uh, were born again, were you baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they said, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, you know, there was some confusion, and so, um, and, and, and so there, there needed to be a lot of groundwork laid in the apostles' doctrine, the teaching of the truth, and the word of God. And so, in fact, Paul would discuss and instruct the believers in Ephesus every day for two years in the rented hall of Tyrannus. And so, uh, during these days, though, we read of reports of savage demonic activity in this city, widespread economic and social upheaval as people abandoned their old ways of life and embraced the word of God and, and a walk with Jesus Christ, uh, these things which set them free. I mean, so much was changing in the city. And if you want to read about it, read chapter 19 of Acts. Now, Paul's time in Ephesus culminated in a citywide riot that lasted for many hours before the people finally dispersed. Now, Paul didn't leave because of the riot. He wasn't, uh, you know, running away from it. He had already determined to head to Jerusalem by way of Greece. But all of that that I just described is the backdrop of this short goodbye meeting that he has in chapter 20, uh, verse 1, uh, with, uh, with these believers in Ephesus. And it begins, it says, after the uproar was over. So the rioters went home. It's a pretty dramatic scene. But the phrase there is interesting. Luke, our author... He doesn't use the Greek word that means finished or, or complete. He uses one that means restrained. It's a less final word. In fact, it's the word we get pause from, right? And so the, the sense is that, well, the, the writing stopped for the immediate time, but it was more like just sort of on pause. The uproar wasn't boiling over at the moment, but the enemies of the gospel were influential and motivated and bankrolled and ready to do some damage. Some of the Jews in the city were slandering Christianity openly, and the local Gentile union was convinced that Christians were going to ruin the city. The riot died down, but the turmoil wasn't resolved, not by a long shot. There were still threats of legal action uh, lurking around. There was still slander, still resentment, still fake news about what Christianity was actually about. And then you add to that the, the simmering racial tensions that were ingrained in the ancient Roman and Jewish cultures during that era. And, and we see uh, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts that right below the surface, there's a lot of, of, of friction between these different groups that were sort of melded together in these uh, Gentile cities, in these Roman cities. Now, imagine your an Ephesian Christian, you've been born again, and, and, and you are going to live in that city for the rest of your life or for the foreseeable future. Often as I read through Acts, I sort of, we end up putting ourselves in the place of the characters we know, right? Paul and Timothy and Luke and Barnabas. We sort of think through what they're experiencing because it, it's their stories that we're following. And we find wonderful application from how God moved in their lives. That's a very good thing and something we should do. There's nothing wrong with that. But tonight, we're, we're Ephesians, right? We're the people that are being left behind when Paul leaves. When Paul goes on to the next place, we go back home. 
uh, into our neighborhoods and into the tensions and the stresses that uh, I've described here. If you still had a job, most of your coworkers aren't believers, if any of them are believers. And not just unbelievers, I mean, they are hardcore pagan weirdos. Now, I know that some of you guys work with hardcore pagan weirdos, um, but, but in a way that is uh, so, uh, so abject and so outright and so in your face. I mean, this is the Roman Empire we're talking about uh, out in Asia Minor. And so, your coworkers aren't believers. If you had been ethnically Jewish, and a bunch of the believers, the Christians in Ephesus were, if you were ethnically Jewish, your, your religious Jewish friends and family who have rejected the gospel have cut you off from, um, from communion with them, from fellowship with them, from the synagogue, from spending time with them. If you were a Gentile who became a Christian, well, life looks a lot different now uh, that you are a Christian than when it did before you were saved. You're not doing pagan things anymore. You're getting rid of books and idols. Your whole social calendar has changed. I mean, uh, everything about the culture of your life has shifted to a, a different perspective, a different way of doing things, and the shedding of a ton of stuff that was part and parcel of the culture of the Roman Empire. So there you are with all of that personal strain among family and friends and in your field of employment, uh, your, your city is about to explode. It's like a tinderbox. And now the general feeling around town is not just that there's problems in our city, but Christians are the problem in our city. Christians are destroying the economy. Christians are deceiving the public. Christians have brought this great city to the verge of ruin. Those were all things that the Christians were accused of in this city. Luke describes the climate this way. He says uh, in... Uh, uh, in Acts 19, about that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. And Luke is a, a, a historian who's careful with his words, and we can take them at face value. He said, I mean, there was a major disturbance going on when it came to being a Christian in the city of Ephesus. What did it mean to be a Christian in Ephesus? And what would it mean now that Paul, the apostle, the leader, the spiritual father, the sort of first line of defense and evangelism and all of these things, now that he was leaving, what would that mean for us? How long would it be until another riot broke out? And when it did, what would we do? So the uproar was over for now, but the problems, they weren't resolved. Paul sent for the disciples. Paul wasn't driven out of Ephesus. He left of his own free will. But it seems like he was keeping a low profile. He wasn't hiding uh, it's, you know, there was a time in the book of Acts where some people want to kill Paul, common theme in his life, and so his friends lower him in a basket down the wall, and he, man, he runs for it. He hoofs it for his life, right? And there's not any shame necessarily in running for your life. We see in the Bible, sometimes God has his people run for their lives in the cover of night, and sometimes he has them walk into the fiery furnace and go through uh, that persecution. So, but Paul's not being driven out of Ephesus. He's just kind of being a little bit on the down low here. He wasn't hiding, but he also wasn't making a big public statement like he did in his departure when he left the city of Philippi. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, uh, they were illegally beaten and thrown in prison and all this stuff happened uh, in the city of Philippi. Uh, the Lord worked it out through some miracles and some incredible grace and uh, Paul and Silas doing their thing. 
And then at the end of that, they said, all right, just let those guys go. And Paul said, oh, no, we're Roman citizens. You did a really bad thing. You're going to come here yourselves and come talk to us. And so it was more of a statement because he was seen to the, the protection of the church in that city. But here we see Paul felt compelled to travel back through the region to minister to other churches he had established. But he wasn't just going on to the next thing. Maybe you know some people who are always excited about something new. They're always on to the next thing, the new thing, something that makes them excited and and takes up all their interest. And sometimes for individuals like that, as they move on to the next thing, that sort of means that your friendship with them gets left behind too because they're, they're busy doing something else. Uh, That's not what Paul was doing here. He wasn't just saying, well, I'm done with the Ephesians and now I'm on to something more exciting. He was thinking of these Ephesian believers and, and he needed to leave. It was time to go. But we see on that day, he wanted to squeeze one more ounce of ministry out for their behalf, right? He wanted to, to pick one more piece of fruit off of the, the tree and, and say, hey, let, let's enjoy this together. I have a few more things to say to you. We only have a few minutes, but we can use those minutes uh, for your good and for God's glory. And so, you know, we kind of see him there. It's as if he's packing up to go and grabbing his stuff. And he says, hey, but get, get the believers to come here because I just have a couple more things to say uh, before I say goodbye to them. When Paul sent for them, we see in that phrase a contrast and a choice. The contrast is between this group of Christians and the group of craftsmen that had assembled in chapter 19. If we were reading through this passage all at once, um, we would see that there was sort of an apostle figure over the silversmith craftsman, and he assembled all of his craftsmen together. His name was Demetrius. And there he had assembled his Avengers together, and he said, you know, what are we going to do? And, and what he did was incite hate and rage and jealousy, and he, he stirred them up to commit violence. The Christians, on the other hand, are assembled together under their apostle uh, to completely opposite ends and goals, right? Their goals as a group Uh, It was truth and peace and unity and the benefit not only of their friends, but also of their enemies. And so we see this great contrast between the assembled craftsmen and the assembled uh, believers in Jesus Christ. And we see just how different these groups are, even though they're comprised of the exact same kinds of people. In fact, some of the Christians had undoubtedly been silversmiths, or part of this guild, part of this work group, just a short time before. Now they said, you know, I've decided to follow Jesus, and I don't make idols anymore, and I don't practice witchcraft anymore, and so now I'm going to go do this. I don't know what I'm going to do. There's not just jobs everywhere in the ancient city of Ephesus, but it's way more important for me to be set free by the love of Jesus Christ, and I'm a Christian now. And so we see these two groups gathered together, and one of them has a lot of power and a lot of influence and a lot of, you know, prominence and position in the city, and what are they doing with it? They're about to destroy their city. They're rioting, and they're hurting people, and they're, they're causing all this trouble so much that, like, the mayor of Ephesus has to come and says, do you guys realize that the Roman Empire is going to show up and wipe us all out because then we're going to be charged with sedition because of what you guys are doing. Meanwhile, you have the assembled Christians over here, uh, people full of love for Jesus Christ and love for their city and love for their fellow man, not just people who are like them, but their enemies as well. And so a really beautiful contrast uh, between God's people and the world's people here. 
But Paul's sending for them didn't only show us a contrast. It also shows that believers in Ephesus would have to make a choice that day. After everything that had happened, knowing all that was going on, sort of understanding the the social and political temperature around them, when Paul sent up a signal flare and said, hey, I'd like the Christians to come and meet with me, would you go and meet with him? You had to make a choice. Each and every one of you would have to make the choice. Okay, Paul says he wants to meet with us. Am I going to meet with them? The last couple of people that were traveling with Paul got dragged into an amphitheater after they were beaten and stuff. And so uh, this is a very real choice they were going to have to make. Would you say, yes, I'm still a Christian, even though it might cost me a pretty penny in the city of Ephesus at this point? The question was, am I a disciple, a a person practicing and exercising my faith, or am I just a person who thinks some things about God? That's one of the things about all of these. We, we read about, well, the Greeks, they were polytheists and the Romans, they had all of these gods and things like that. And a lot of people were deep into um, pagan worship of, of all of these false gods. And then a lot of people were like, yeah, yeah, pinch my incense to Caesar. I don't really believe Zeus exists. I don't really believe that uh, Poseidon's in charge of the sea. I'm just, you know, I'm a Roman. I'm a cultural Roman and I go to the party or whatever, but, but I don't really believe. Right, but that—that's not that. There's there's no dichotomy like that in in the New Testament description of a Christian, where it's like, well, there's Christians who really believe something, and then there's just Christians who, you know, they kind of think some things about God, but that's it. Uh, the Bible presents Christianity as one thing, right? That we're children of God who have been transformed and are being sanctified by God, being conformed into his image, and people who are practicing our faith, living out our faith, have a, have a faith that actually moves and actually operates in our lives, right? And so these believers in Ephesus would have to make a choice. Fraternal order. Maybe you've belonged to one. A fraternal order, order of firefighters or Eagle Scouts or Sons of Italy Acts 19 and 20, they show these these two brotherhoods in the city. You had the craftsmen dedicated to their own wealth at the expense of others, and then you had the disciples who were dedicated to the transformation of lives and communities through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so you were going to have to choose, okay, which, which brotherhood am I going to belong to today? Would, would they answer the call? Now, remember, these were people who hadn't been Christians very long, maybe a few years at the longest. Some were probably brand new in their faith, maybe just saved for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but already they're being effectively presented with, hey, are you you willing to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ? But here's what's interesting about the, the example and the testimony of the Ephesian Christians. Spiritual strength is available on day one of your spiritual life. The power to walk worthy of the calling is not withheld until you get a master's of divinity, right? It's like those, you know, uh, it's interesting when you, uh, you you know, when you're in school and you learn about certain animals where it's like they give birth and then the baby can like start walking immediately. Uh, Obviously, human babies can't do that, but some of these babies that immediately, it's like within five minutes, the baby giraffe is walking and running and, you know, doing cartwheels and stuff like that. You're like, whoa, how's that even possible? Well, it's because they were made to walk right away, right? And the Christian life is the same way. Now, 
we're always going to be learning and we're always going to be growing and always going to be developing, but spiritual strength to walk with the Lord is available on day one, moment one of you becoming a Christian. Uh, You don't have to first qualify in order to be allowed onto the the freeway with the Lord, right? God provides strength and and equipment for, for your Christian life right now. Now, we never stop learning and we never stop becoming more strengthened and more rooted in Christ, but, but, but walking with the Lord is something we can do at every stage of our Christian life. The word disciple there, it says he called for the disciples. The word disciple means pupil or learner. But power for living and grace for today has been delivered to you, even if you're a brand new Christian in a violently pagan city like Ephesus. The Lord says, hey, I've got something for you. It's grace for today, it's hope for tomorrow, it's power for your situation, it's what you need in order to not just make it through your life, but to glorify God and and make an eternal difference in God's kingdom uh, by his power. Uh, Paul encouraged them, that's the next phrase there. Ben Witherington writes, it was Paul's practice to reinforce and strengthen the churches he founded. When it says that Paul encouraged them, it doesn't mean that he gave them pablum or cliches or just like, well, you guys will be okay. It'll be all right. Uh, He may have said it's going to be all right, but then he explained to them why that was true. He exhorted them and he comforted them and he gave them the truth. He, He spoke to them authoritative words that built them up and made them strong in the Lord. Spiritual strength was something that was very important to Paul. In Romans 1, here's what he says. He said, I very much want to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He talks about spiritual strength a different time in the book of Romans and in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, walking with God Man, as we walk with God, we're meant to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. I mean, think about those images, rooted, built up, established. These are all images and words having to do with strength and durability and and the ability to withstand pressures and troubles and problems. The New Testament assumes that you and I as Christians are going to be weak in the eyes of the unbelieving world, but that we will be strong in the power of our God because spiritual strength isn't dependent on us and what, what we accomplish, but on what we allow the Lord to do in and through us. And as we submit to God and submit to his word and allow the Lord to do his work of sanctification in us, he says, okay, when I do that, I make you strong. I make you like a tree planted by rivers of living water so that you can not only bear fruit, but that you can be strong. Your life is going to be like somebody who anchors their house down onto a rock, and it doesn't matter how tall the waves are, and it doesn't matter how strong the winds are. Do you have the winds the other night? It was like blowing my, one of my fences down in the back. I was like, it'd be nice if my fence on the back there was rooted on the rock. It's not. It's rooted in the mud of my backyard, right? And so, but the Lord says, man, spiritual, uh, spiritual relationship with me is meant to be like those crazy things that they like anchor down into concrete, bam, bam, bam. And like, it doesn't matter how, how hard the winds blow because you're rock solid thanks to my strength. So uh, the Ephesians come together and Paul has to give them the hard news that he's leaving 
They won't have an apostle with them anymore, but he reminds them of the truths of God's power and of their faith and that they do not have to have an apostle with them at all times in order to live out the Christian life. And that's really good news because we don't have apostles to live with us as we live out the Christian life. Now we do, we have the testimony of the apostles. We have the inspired inerrant word of God, these letters that were given uh, from the apostles, right? But we don't have Paul the apostle coming to church every Sunday, or in this case, every day we meet with him and we can say, hey, I have a question about X, Y, or Z, right? But we don't need to have apostles with us at all times in order to live the Christian life. Now, even though the apostles were necessary to establish the church, God used their lives and their teaching as the foundation for the church. But now, as regular disciples, you and me, who take up the call and follow after the Lord wherever he has scattered us, we can do it. We don't have to have a, 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 a Paul with us at all times in order to accomplish what God wants us to do as individual Christians or as a church. Where Paul says that, uh, excuse me, where it says that Paul encouraged them, the term comes from a Greek word maybe you've heard of before, parakletos. It has to do with the parakeet birds that fly around. That's not true. I'm just kidding. Parakletos, you maybe have heard of. I'm not a Greek scholar, but some of these words keep coming up um, as you study the word of God. That word, uh, Greek dictionaries will tell you, means one called or sent for to assist another, an advocate, one who pleads the cause of another. And so it says that Paul said he came and encouraged them. Okay, well, Paul, how are you going to advocate for us? How are you going to come alongside us if you're leaving? Right? He says, I, I, here, I'm here to paraclete for you. And by the way, I'm leaving. And it's like, wait, what's happening? I thought you were here to assist us and come alongside us. How is that possible? Well, for one thing, even though the church is scattered all around the world, we are still united in Christ and we are able to serve alongside one another wherever we find ourselves. But more importantly, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Father sent us another helper, the Holy Spirit, who the New Testament calls the paraclete, the big one, uh, the one that we need most of all. So even though it would have been a very hard loss when Paul the Apostle left town, he was able to remind them that day that a greater helper was staying behind to build them up and strengthen them day by day. His help would be much better than Paul's help. I mean, during the riot of Acts 19, Paul wasn't able to do anything to help. He wanted to, but there was nothing he could do. He was powerless to help in that situation. But the Holy Spirit has omnipotent power at all times and in all places, in all lives, and he will be with us forever, the Bible says. And so we have that helper that we need. And it says, after saying farewell, Paul departed to go to Macedonia. As Mary Poppins floated away, Bert says, goodbye, Mary Poppins. Don't stay away too long. Well, she came back 54 years later for the sequel, right? <laughs> she looked different, but that's okay. Uh, the <laughs> these Ephesians didn't know it, but most of them would never see Paul again. They would hear from him in five years or so when he wrote his letter to them that we have in our New Testament. But their spiritual father, their pastor, their teacher, their friend was heading out. I imagine it would have been easy to think, what are we going to do without Paul? But then they would only have to remember what God had already done in their midst. How the Lord had saved them from the chains of sin. How he had freed their minds from the perversity and the lies and the waste that they had been steeped in before they were saved. 
how the Holy Spirit had filled their hearts. And when he did, many of them prophesied, we're told in Acts 19, how God had provided places for them to gather and answers to their many questions and joy for their hearts, how they had already seen God accomplishing his good purposes in and through them day by day, even as opposition increased, how the word of God was spreading and prevailing all around them. See, that's such a great note that that Luke gives us in Acts 19 verse 20. All of this stuff is happening. All of this social upheaval and riots and slanders and people don't know what's true and what's not true about Christianity. Those who are outside the church and and you've got Jewish people who are who are saying to the Christians, get out of here. You've got Gentiles people saying, get out of here. There's all this stuff going on. The apostle, the founder of your church, your spiritual father is saying, I'm leaving. You guys are going to be on your own with the Holy Spirit. All of this is happening and here's Luke's assessment in chapter 19, verse 20, that the word of God was spreading and prevailing all around them. What a great thing. It would have been hard to say goodbye, but their spiritual future wasn't dependent on Paul's presence. The Lord was still with them, and it was his presence that mattered, right? And that's what Paul had expressed to them. And that's what he would continue to express to them and to the rest of us through his epistles. And he says, yeah, it's not, about, it's not about you being around me. It's not about me being in charge of the gatherings in the hall of Tyrannus. It's about the Holy Spirit working through you, doing what he has promised to do through anyone who's willing to let him do it. Because when, when Christians allow the Holy Spirit to do his work and when Christians submit themselves to the word of God, oh, then they're built up and established and strong. And it doesn't matter if you're abounding or if you're abased. It doesn't matter if you're in a riot or rotting in prison or you're do, doing right, you know, everything's going really great. The Lord, he says, the Lord's with you, strengthening you, helping you giving you joy and purpose and peace and grace and all of the things that you need. You don't need Paul to be here. It's nice to have him around to answer some questions, but what you, what you need, you already have. You, you have the word. Just commit it to your heart. You, you have the Holy Spirit. Just allow him to do his work. You have the faith that's been delivered to you. Just let it operate in your lives. Now, I don't mean to suggest that we face the kinds of pressures that a first century Christian did in pagan Ephesus, right? I think think we can be humble enough to say they had some stressors and some, some pressures that we didn't have to face, right? We don't see blatant, violent persecutions against Christians where we live. But we do live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the Lord and to his word, a culture and a, and a land that is increasingly a land of division and riots and upheaval. We didn't used to live in a place where it was like, well, hey, where's the riot tonight, right? I, I mean, I, when I was growing up in Hanford, it, it wasn't really a regular thing now. Oh, well, yeah, there's a riot in this town, and now the, tomorrow there's a riot in this town, and hey, they scheduled the riot on Facebook for this town next week, Right? And that's all just, where it's just normal now. Where's the riot? Oh, Seattle. Oh, okay, now it's happening here. And now it's happening there. Okay, where's the riot tonight? Is it in Visalia? Is it going to be in Hanford tomorrow? Well, you know, we, we tend to think, well, that, that's just LA. That's just Portland. That's just Baltimore, just Chicago. You know, things are happening all over the place because we live in a land that is increasingly hostile, everyone towards everyone else, increasingly divisive, increasingly violent, we live in a land of, of, uh, of 
cults and belligerent fraternities and all sorts of perversion. We live in a time of social upheaval, economic upheaval. And here's where God has scattered us to the praise of his glory. Here in 21st century America, God's intention is to make us spiritually strong right where we find ourselves. And and in that strength, not just to endure the dark days in which we live, but to make us strong so that he can speak through our lives so that others who are currently lost and trapped in sin might be set free and transformed by the gospel like we were, so that people can be drawn out of the riots of Ephesus, out of the silversmith's union of Ephesus, and brought into the family of faith. And we still have the helper. We have the Holy Spirit with us forever. We have the word of God. I mean, we have so much more of a resource at our disposal than the baby Christians in Ephesus had. They didn't have, uh, you know, a New Testament to put in their pocket and commit to memory. They had five years from now, they had one letter, (laughs) you know? And so we have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit who's instructing us and renewing us and bearing witness about Christ in us and through us. We need to be a people who understand the days in which we live and understand what our place in this world is. And for one thing, our place is passing through, right? To remember that my place in this world is that I'm not of this world. I am passing through on my way home to my forever abode with Christ Jesus in glory. But for another, our our place, our position given by God is to be witnesses, being holy priests, lights in the dark, preachers of righteousness, peacemakers, disciples who are going and making more disciples as we move through this world. And so God has called us into this Christian life and placed us into this local community that we find ourselves in. And we are able to enjoy his spiritual strength even during upheaval because the Lord is with us and he will be with us until the end. 